Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett stepped into the Quantum Leap Accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself trapped in the past, facing mirror images that were not his own, and driven by an unknown force to change history for the better. His only guide on this journey is Al, an observer from his own time, who appears in the form of a hologram that only Sam can see and hear. And so Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, striving to put right what once went wrong, and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 143, The Americanization of Machiko. Revisited. Oh my God. I'm Popeye. I'd leap back as Charles Lee McKenzie, aviation machinist mate, 2nd class, U.S. Navy. Japanese yen and the sea bag told me he was shipping home from the Far East and... Home appeared to be Oak Creek, Ohio, August 4th, 1953. Charlie! Welcome home. Dad? It's good to see ya. Throw that thing in there. Hey, Charlie. Mrs. McKenzie? Mr. McKenzie? Ah. Oh. What can we do for you, Herman? Well, I found this lady wandering on Main Street, and she claims that she's married to your son. Uh-oh, Sam. Trouble in River City. Don't blame me. Blame Ziggy. Charlie-san, your kata. Uh, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Mackenzie, I am most honored to meet the family of my husband. Surprise. They never accepted her. She had to go back to Japan alone and heartbroken, and she never remarried. She can have the summer porch. The spare room will do fine. That's Eileen's room. It's not a shrine. But that's Eileen's room. Who is Eileen? Charlie's sister. She died over a year ago. Such news saddens my heart. Charlie, how could you? How could I what, Mom? What? You just waltz in here with that Japanese bride and expect me to take her in? How could you do this to me? I wasn't thinking of it as doing something to you. That woman will never be part of my family. Do you hear me? Never. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast, everyone. I'm Christopher DeFilippis. I'm Allison Pregler. And I'm Matt Dale. And today we're back to revisiting the classic series, and we are revisiting everybody's favorite season two episode, am I right? The Americanization of Machiko. It's it's everybody's favorite season two episode that features the word Americanization in the title, <laughs> certainly. I mean, right? I think that's a bit of a bold statement for a season that has MIA in it. 
and thou shalt not. <laughs> yeah, this is with fan favorite thou shalt not. You really can't blame it for not being the top of everyone's list for season yes. two. It's <laughs> There's no other season two episode that outdoes any of these. <laughs> well, I will save my initial thoughts for initial impressions. But before we Ooh. go there, um, we have an interview with Kay Callen in the archives that I listened back to this morning. And uh, I want to run that. So I think we're going to rerun that after the break on this episode because Albie spoke to her and she's interesting. And if there is an interesting part of this episode, Kay Callen is it. So um, I'm, happy, yes. I'm happy that we got her on the record about playing this character. Again, lots to say, but uh, I'll wait for initial impressions. But just I want everybody to stay tuned for that after the break. Kay is great. And she spoke to Albie many years ago, but uh, interview still holds up. So, And she's still working. And she's Superman's mom. She's Superman's she's mom. Super- Right. I mean, right there. So you got Kate Callan to look forward to, everybody. Unfortunately, we have to talk about Machigo uh, in, in the interim, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> why don't we get everybody's initial impressions? I'm really intrigued. <laughs> this is going to be an interesting recording. Uh, Allison, give me give me your take. Give me give me a hot take. What's the hot gas uh, on Machigo? Maybe I'm going to have the most positive <laughs> thoughts about this episode. Uh, I think it's good. I mean... It's not like uh, one of the top episodes, I guess, but I think it's like fun enough. It's got like a message. Uh, I know a lot of people uh, don't like it that much. I could see why some people might think it's a little bit, I don't know, stereotyped or something. But uh, for the most part, I found it a pretty decent episode. All right. And you, Matt, how about you? I'm going to go back to a format that we used to do ages ago and then stop doing, which was talking about the first impressions, the the very, very first impressions, because I found this one a slow burn. I remember not liking it when I was a kid, and I think a lot of that was because it relies on knowledge of a specific time in America that I just could not wrap my head around and could not find a connection to. The more I watch it as I've grown up, the more I've fallen in love with it. This is not the best episode of season two, but I think it's right up there. I really like this one. What's your problem, Chris? Tell us. <laughs> He's been talking to Fate's Wide Wheel. That's right, Adam. <laughs> Damn, Sam and Dennis, you got me. If you recall, at the end of uh, the last episode, I said that I had fond memories of Machiko. I remembered quite liking it, and it's been years since I saw it. But um, upon this rewatch, I am so surprised at how much I disliked the episode when <gasps> it wasn't actively cringy. I was actively uncomfortable with all of the themes that were going on in the episode. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that I do remember fondly, and I think this is what stuck out to me, was just the wonderful performance by Layla Lee Olsen, who plays Machiko, Mm -hmm. and the scenes that she has with Scott. That, I thought, was great. But it was too little in an episode that I found very difficult to watch for many different reasons, both thematically and honestly just just it, some of the stuff just doesn't work. So I want to talk about one of the things that I think is, is this unique to American television, the surprise bride? Yeah, I feel, I feel like it is. Like I've seen this before, like maybe in it's a wonderful life you know, Harry brings home a wife. Oh, surprise, meet the wife. It's just like, who does that? Uh, my brother did that, <laughs> but we at least knew who the bride was. previous. <laughs> really? Oh, okay. So, I guess uh, <laughs> maybe I'm wrong there. Okay, maybe it's not. Okay, moving on from that point. <laughs> well, I mean, it was, <laughs> at least we knew who it was. I don't know about like coming up with just a complete stranger, but I guess like at least in this episode, 
it was kind of a twist on it in that Sam was also surprised that he was married. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cute, though. The, the look on his face when he realizes what's going on. He's like, I'm loving this. I'm enjoying this. Yeah. <laughs> he finds it really fun. But here's one of the first things that I've, I found very clunky about the episode. I mean, so he gets off the bus and it's understandable that he leaves Machiko there at the bus station and it takes a while for her to get back to him. And once she's revealed, she doesn't say, hey, why did you leave me in the middle of town? Why did you abandon me? <laughs> She just like acts like nothing happened and he's just smiling and laughing like nothing happened. Oh, isn't this funny? Isn't this great? He never said, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Are you okay? Or It just struck me as an odd way to go. Can we start by going back slightly further than that before we go into that point? One of my few negative points about this episode, the opening monologues uh, from Sam at this point are usually <laughs> a touch, a touch cliched. This one just hits a couple of home runs there. It, it's a little like leaping out of the frying pan and into the fire um, for, for Disco Inferno. And then sometimes it feels like I'm lost at sea. What? what? It, they what? were stretching. Stretch. Can you imagine if they kept this format? If he's trying to get out of like, you know, in from, from rape to diaper monkey, like how is he going to do one of those intros? You know, like, ah, I don't know. yeah i don't know you you see him punch kevin through the gazebo and say just when you think you got one problem licked bam you son of a bitch (laughs) you're put into a whole new test when you're on a leap you meet a lot of animals (laughs) (laughs) he comes in strapped to the accelerator whatever that thing was that he was in diaper monkey right the centrifuge or yeah some sort of space thing (laughs) it was clearly about now they decided we need a saga cell they yeah well I mean it's still a little bit before we get to another mother we still got a handful of them oh yeah they carry on a couple more months sorry but yeah I just I wanted to get that out of my system before you no thank you for bringing it up because those parts to me are still all new like I still this is the first watch through I've done of Quantum Leap with the original sort of things intact that weren't cut for syndication with just Mm. the saga cell. So it's very interesting to me to see how bad some of these are and the lengths that they have to go through to link one episode to the next. It's 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 almost like watching a train wreck. Like, you, how are they going to do it this time? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it feels very dated. It, it feels corny. We had the same thing in the UK because when we first ran the first two seasons, they were run a little bit out of order enough that the BBC just chopped out those flashbacks. And when in the 90s, when they released a handful of the episodes on video, in the US, they were just the, the full unedited versions. But in the UK, they did the same thing again. They said, all right, well, we, we can't have flashbacks to Disco Inferno when we don't have Disco Inferno available for sale. Those poor British buyers of the videos will get confused that they haven't been able to purchase Disco Inferno. So they edited it out. So I think it wasn't until the DVDs came out that I saw this either. Yeah, and I think it's an interesting bit of Quantum Leap history. It's fun to watch them this way. I love like the little uh, cornball recaps or like the idents that you'd see on commercials when you watch them on air. You know, like Quantum Leap will be right back. And you have like, <laughs> a little logo and stuff, like yeah. moments in time. So something like this does feel dated, but it feels like, you know, this was what the presentation was then. You're kind of like taken into the time <laughs> when this show was made. So mm. it is a little bit cornball, but like I enjoy seeing them. Uh, I was glad they switched to the to the saga cell eventually because they were really stretching for what these segues were going to be, and it felt ultimately unnecessary. 
you know, like the saga cell was nice because it just explained the premise and that's it. And you don't need it to be attached to uh, whatever show it was previously leaping into from. Yeah. And that's almost like they had to stick to the conceit of previously on Quantum Leap, Mm -hmm. but Quantum Leap didn't need that. And I think that they were also really concerned that people were going to be confused about the premise and what's going on. So anyway, they can engage you into the fact that he's moving around to different places, different eras, different bodies. Yeah, I think they needed the saga cell because it explained the show a hell of a lot better than those recaps. The recaps really didn't do anything. Yeah. Like they are unnecessary to the episode. Some of them open with leaping around in time, which is just about enough, like bare minimum, to explain, oh, here's what's going on. But not even all of them have that. Some of them just assume you already know that. So yeah, what's the point? I think they just didn't know how to begin the episode because it starts with him leaping in. You need to leap in from something. So maybe they were trying to demonstrate, you know, like how jarring it was for him. Uh, I guess they eventually started doing it from the saga cell. You know, maybe they just didn't know exactly what to come in from. Uh, And when they leap in from this one, uh, the (laughs) the intro to this where he goes, oh boy, like, or he, he says, like, I'm Popeye. I don't think he even says, oh boy, yet. He says, I'm Popeye. It makes it seem like this episode's going to be about him being in the Navy or something, but that's really not what this episode is about at all. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if they had gotten the idea of the tease down quite yet. I think it was still like, okay, hey, this is the situation he's in this week, and maybe we don't have to link it thematically to what's going on because it's still novel enough where you say, oh, wow. Uh, no, he's he's now he's a sailor. Like just the fact that he's in a different person. Yeah, and he's got a different costume on. It's like right. Oh, it, no, was, it was it was enough to carry it. Right, <laughs> that hadn't grown old yet. <laughs> it's like yeah, of course he's got a different costume on. Duh. <laughs> but yeah. Um. So uh, that that being said, this was I think one of the sillier of the monologues. But I think that we, if we're going to grade them, can we all agree that the one from Honeymoon Express into Disco Inferno stands out as hands down the worst. <laughs> Someone's always <laughs> trying to steal your girl. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that was weak. If we're going to rank them, let's keep that one as, as sort of the pinnacle of badness. I don't know. I don't remember all of them, but that one just made me laugh <laughs> with the like <laughs> analogy about the dance. Um, I like to, uh, when Sam leaped in in this one, he's Popeye, right? Uh, he doesn't seem incredibly thrown off. Like, he's just like, oh, I'm a sailor, okay. But then he starts going into detective mode. And then he starts explaining to us how he's determining who he is and where yes. he came from and came from and what he's doing, which I think was kind of interesting. I thought it was neat just seeing his process. And it wasn't just, you know, like a dump of data at him. Like, he's figuring things out on his own. That's when he gets picked up by his dad. He doesn't know that Machiko has come with him. He's left her behind and he's uh, driving with him and uh, he likes uh, Charlie's dad. He's leaped into Charlie McKenzie and uh, he likes his dad because he reminds him of his dad. I liked her. He wasn't exactly Indiana, but this leap made me feel like I was going home. Maybe because there was something about Henry, his smile, his laugh. Something reminded me of my own dad. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he said this wasn't Indiana, but it was close enough. And he's he's feeling a little bit nostalgic for his childhood. If Sam grew up in a town like this, though, if Velkridge was anything like whichever, what were they, in Ohio? I forget. But this town was awful. It was the awful town. 
the worst town on the planet. I mean, just the casual racism and bigotry that was rampant mm -hmm. throughout this episode and yeah. basically throughout the town. That's one of the things that turned me off. And that's why I feel like, you know, for the sake of a gag of leaving Machiko at the bus station, they kind of slighted the character because she doesn't have any kind of recourse about it. Like there's no scene in which they reconcile that. Oh, it just happened. Surprise. I'm married. Why didn't you say anything? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe she was just kind of nervous and she was being very uh, subservient to him uh, at the beginning of the episode. He had, he had that little talk with her about like, you know, women and men have equal rights here. <laughs> same with same -oo. Yeah, maybe she wasn't saying anything about it because she was just feeling uneasy. It did seem weird to leave it unaddressed. I do think it was kind of unusual in this 50s small town farm area most of the people were not really that racist against her. Most of them seemed pretty embracing of Machiko. It was mostly the mom and uh, Rusty. It seems like those two were the main ones that were being racist. Everyone else seemed pretty embracing of her, and um, except for Naomi, but she had like other reasons not to like her. Yeah. Um, I thought that was kind of weird, actually. I can see what you're saying there. I guess because the characters that we spent time with were defined by that, and that's what got me. And the one thing that might contradict what you're saying, Allison, is um, the scene where they're going through town and he's buying Machiko the clothes, and when they come out of the store, on the side of the truck, it says, go home, Jap. That truck is out in the middle of the street. Rusty obviously did it. Everybody right. passing by had to have seen him doing right. it out in the open. Nobody stopped him. Nobody said anything. Right. Yeah. I think like that sort of thing would be blatant and people wouldn't stop someone from doing that. Yeah. So, I mean, so that struck me, but I know that we're going to complain about her a lot in the course of this episode. So I want to say right now, anyway, I'm going to complain about her a lot in the course of this episode. So I want to say up front, Kay Callen did an amazing job as Lenore. Like, yeah. like Louise Fletcher, Kai Wynn level, hate you stuff. She was amazingly hateable in this episode. She did such a great job. And the fact that she did such a good job is what made me actively dislike the episode for most of the time that I was watching it. Like I said, some of the things that made me cringy, we can get to, but just her unrelenting toxicity and the fact that she was just so closed off and so rude and just did not respect anything or anybody except for her own fears, her own prejudices – I, I, I'm, I'm like watching the saying, why doesn't the husband call her out on this? Why doesn't Sam do more to say? It seemed like in a lot of the scenes, they were just saying, oh, well, she needs some time or she's not used to this. Instead of saying, why are you being such an asshole? This goes beyond I'm uncomfortable. This is like being actively hateful to someone who your son says he loves. And it, it doesn't just go with Machiko, though. It's almost with, like, every relationship she has. But Machiko, of course, is the focus because of the episode. Were you guys feeling the same way when you were watching it? As, as just, why doesn't anybody stop this monster? Honestly, no, because I, I Sam, maybe. But Sam was obviously taking a different route in that he was, he was more focused on making sure Machiko was okay and comforting her than dealing directly with it, which is a little out of character for, for Sam. But... Others, like the the husband, I mean, they obviously have a history. It felt like a, a very believable relationship between the two of them. And perhaps this is something that's come up before. Or just either way, he knows there's, there's no point coming out and slamming her down. 
Yeah, uh, I've had uncles uh, who were married to aunts that were <laughs> maybe not uh, blatantly racist, but maybe not the nicest people. <laughs> and uh, a lot of them were kind of like that, you know, we're just like, mm, I don't know. I try talking to her. I'm married to her. Whatever. <laughs> you know? yeah. So, I mean, I've known people like that. I think also part of uh, her character, and I do think that she was very unlikable because she was being racist and she was being awful to Machiko. Part of what that was stemming from was because she didn't want to be looked at or judged or talked about like what happened with her daughter who had committed suicide. So part of that is stemming from that. Uh, I think part of it also is small town racism and, and things like that. But, you know, as far as her husband not speaking out against her or things like that, you know, uh, oftentimes people who have prejudices don't just define themselves by that prejudice. So it might not have come up as much. She probably didn't come across a lot of Japanese people. Maybe he didn't care that much. I don't know. But it didn't seem that unbelievable to me that he wouldn't really step up and say anything. Even though he probably should have for his son. And for Machiko. I'm glad you mentioned the story about the daughter as well, because that was one of my favourite elements of this episode, that there was effectively this whole other story that had happened beforehand, which could have been an episode in itself, that was so well explored in a couple of very short scenes. I found it that whole thing was fascinating, and we never saw any of it happen. We didn't even see it in flashback. And I, I thought there was, there was some great material there, and a really a, a great... <laughs> environment that was created around this thing uh, that had happened before. Well, that was the real turning point for Lenore's character, too. When Mach goes in the hospital, she says, I can't do for her what I couldn't do for Eileen. And her finally embracing vulnerability, um, being gawked at, letting go of what she'd been holding inside her when she comes to the wedding dressed uh, in the kimono. Mm -hmm. That was her letting go of that as well so yeah it, it all kind of came together in the end yeah and i understand you know the arc that the character went through i have problems with the way it ended but let's let's just stick with the daughter story for now so lenore had a daughter who got pregnant and who i guess she said they were all laughing behind their hands at her and even naomi says when everybody abandoned her apparently including your own mother i was the one that stuck by your sister until the day she killed herself they said it was an accident but i know she drove off that bridge out of the shame and out of out of the guilt and and all that so basically we have lenore who almost drove her own daughter to suicide with her non-acceptance yet she still doesn't learn her lesson well that was the point yeah. <laughs> That's what she was learning in this episode. You've seen Quantum Leap before, right, Chris? I mean, people people, <laughs> le people learn things. I don't know. I, you know what? I just found her so unlikable. It's like now I'm supposed to feel bad for you because you were an utter asshole to your daughter to the point where she had to kill herself to get away from you. I, I, it's like, so um, is there supposed to be redemption for this monster? Like, is that what we're looking at here? I, I, I don't know if I want to hear your side of the story. Yeah, I mean, I guess you don't have to like her by the end. That that was the arc of the character, but it is difficult to watch scenes where she's berating Machiko for cleaning the floors or making rice and like throwing it out or when she's like so cruel to her that she runs out in the middle of the storm, um almost gets killed, you know. So she does a lot of bad things in this episode. I I I feel like they added enough layers to her you understood how she got there, and hopefully she was able to mend things in the end. It seemed like she was attempting to, anyway. 
Oh, <laughs> I have a problem with the way she did that, too. I got to be honest with you. <laughs> She's like, now the wedding's about me. Exactly. <laughs> you read my mind, Allison. It's just like, oh, it's always about you, isn't it? Yeah. It, well, it's, it, it's, I don't know if this would be a real wedding because it's technically, they're like, well, we got to get married the American way or in a Christian church or whatever, you know, but they are already married anyway. I don't know why Sam thinks like, gulp, well, I better get out of here or maybe like God will consider me married and that's bad. <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> when does he care like about that? Was that that whole bit earlier on where he uncomfortably says like, Charlie loves Machico. <laughs> He's yeah. like, I can't say I do. Right. I can't, even though I think Sam kind of did. He seemed kind of into her. Oh yeah, they, they were a sweet couple. You could see it in his eyes. Yeah, he was smitten by her. I mean, but I was smitten by her too, so. I think Charlie, as a leapy, is probably one of the people closest to what Sam is like outside of when he leaped into, like, <laughs> himself. <laughs> yeah. Know? Like, he, there's a lot of similarities between the two. It's not really about, like, an awkward situation that Sam is in. He's just fixing a situation for Machiko. Like, he doesn't really have to try that hard to be someone in this leap because he kind of is comfortable in, in who he is in the sleep yeah yeah they're very very similar background very similar uh person so that that makes sense i hadn't even considered that part of it so it made it easy for him to focus on what he had to focus on but they did try to allude to that uh with lenore saying there's something strange about charlie strange he's different <laughs> he's a man now no it's something else the look in his eyes a mother can tell. So I, I was wondering if they were going to explore that a little more, but it seems like they just dropped it. And it'd be interesting. Again, I've always had this theory that if somebody replaced someone that you love and that you know, you're eventually going to notice it. You're going to notice something's off anyway. You, you even called me out on it once, Alice. And what, do you think Do you think that I would think that were replaced by a time traveler? No, <laughs> but <laughs> I would know that something is up or there's something off about them. And I thought it was nice that Lenore could, you know, cop to that. At least she had this connection with Charlie. She thought she did. And they were able to hand wave it away because he's been away for two years, right? So, oh, he's a man now. He's, he's grown up now. Yeah. I think also if it hadn't been Sam, he probably would be different than how she remembered because it had been two years he'd been away and it might also have been her projecting a little bit like well my charlie wouldn't go off and get married with a japanese girl like he wouldn't do this there's something off about him you know like she might have noticed there was something off about him but um that might also have been part of it i think yeah the dad says well he's a mad now i'm thinking the dad is thinking you know what yeah he's gotten laid that's why he's different yeah yeah <laughs> He had some so, sex. We don't we don't say that in the fifties, but he's a man now should do. You get it? It's code, yeah. but you get it. We all knew what he meant by that. Just like Naomi was Yeah, she, let's let's talk about she sex, waited baby. for marriage. <laughs> he's just lucky that I waited. The way I heard it. You didn't exactly wait, Naomi. What I meant, Lenore is wait to get married. Another cringeworthy element of this episode to me was Naomi. When I wasn't annoyed by her, I felt so sorry for her because she had the most thankless role, even more thankless than Lenore, of just being the, even though, uh, I don't know that Tommy's even on the show yet, but a Tommy-style vamp, <laughs> uh, even though Tommy didn't write this She one. crazy. <laughs> <laughs> 
She's just crazy. This amusing <laughs> sex bot that throws herself at Sam for comedy. Because that's what's funny yeah. on yeah. Quantum Leap. You know that anytime we have a woman who's unattached, they are going to attack Sam against his will. And is this the first instance of that? No, I don't think so. I think Starcross was the first one with the like uh, the college student that oh, was throwing yeah. herself yeah. all over him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but the, when when you filter that down to just the ones that are actually properly a bit unhinged, of which there's there's a few. I think this might be the first. You don't think the lady in Starcrossed was a little unhinged? <laughs> Jamie Lee? Uh, she's just, she's a loved up kid. She seemed a little unhinged to me. <laughs> Whereas, like, Naomi, the girl from Hurricane. Oh, the ones that are, like, legit, like, they need mental help. Y- yeah. I don't know if Naomi needed mental help. I think she was just a jerk. She was a little bit, like, all over him and, like, not listening to him in a way that is, like, this is a how it happens on tv i guess mm-hmm. i did like the setup for this he's in the barn and then like he's like oh it's so sweaty and then he like <laughs> takes his shirt off like blatant fan service we're like sweaty scott Bakula <laughs> taking off his his tank top <laughs> and then the hay and then she starts rolling around in the hay with him and like it's just it's not good right and al's there the whole time thinking that Sam's doing this. Taking a little time out for a roll in the hay, Sam? This is not what it looks like. When I think of all the times you try to make me feel like a sleaze. It's like, Al, are you not even paying attention to the words that are happening here? (laughs) Al's dumb. Yeah, he just wants uh, sex to be happening all the time, except when he's jealous of it. Right, right. And the only thing sexier than a sweaty shirtless Scott is an incensed sweaty Skirtless, uh, shirtless. Yes. I can't even say it. I'm so verklempt. Sense, sweaty, shirtless Scott. That's a good uh, tongue <laughs> twister there. We're going to put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> there was a great blooper from this scene too, where yes. it's like, yeah. it's the two of them with like this pig behind them that won't shut up. It just keeps making <laughs> stupid pig noises and cracking them up. <laughs> now this love scene is stolen by a pig with a digestive problem. Hot <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, mean, that's what pigs do, right? I don't. What were they expecting? Oh, we know Scott had experience with pigs on the set. Yes, crapping all over them. Hopefully, this one didn't poo on him. (laughs) Yeah, they were probably rolling in pig poo, though, right? There had to be pig poo on the ground in there. I mean, I'm guessing. I'm guessing. But so they played that, you know, the the sex vamp stuff for comedy, and uh, I found that so cringy. Uh, especially the act break when they have the whole thing where everybody's saying each other's names. Machiko. Naomi. Reverend Belcher. Oh. oh boy. It was just like this is so freaking contrived. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The Rocky Horror moment. Yeah, can you explain that, Matt? So behind the scenes, Matt sent a supercut of the Naomi, <laughs> Revlin Felcher, the Machiko, whatever that the end was. And then you put, what did you put on the end of that? <laughs> the, there's a, I mean, you either get it or you don't. It depends yeah. whether you've seen Rocky Horror. But it's, yeah, there's a famous scene in Rocky Horror where everybody comes into the scene together and there's, it just cuts between people saying, Janet, Dr. Scott, Janet, Brad, Rocky. <laughs> Janet, Dr. Scott, Janet, Brad, Rocky. Rocky. And that happens like three times over. <laughs> you see, you were thinking Rocky Horror. I was thinking of the Shrek scene. Yes. Donkey! Harold! Shrek! Fiona! Fiona! Mom! Harold! Donkey! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
donkey. <laughs> yeah. I'm the only one who can't pull up a, a ready reference, although this happens on TV all the time. This this to me feels like as tropey as the, uh, <laughs> the surprise wife. It wasn't just... <laughs> everyone calling each other's names there was a whole big setup for this right for it to be like a big laugh moment yeah, then he comes yeah. up to sam and then knocks him over and they fall over and then he kind of yells uh, as they're falling and then machiko who has taken her top off to do some like laundry because it was like i guess a common practice in japan just to like do this topless so she runs over to see what's going on and then she thinks that charlie's cheating on her and then like they are freaking out because she's uh she's naked and then like i mean the, uh, the women are freaking out because she's naked the, the right. men seem quite happy about this <laughs> yeah the uh, the mom and the dad and uh, a reverend and his wife are on the way over there and uh they hear the commotion they come in and so the reverend also see what's going on and then they're like kind of the women are kind of scandalized about it and everyone says each other's names and it's so hilarious all these things came together <laughs> I was just like, please, please cut to black. Please cut to black. You can't cut to black fast enough. Oh, it's oh, it's still going on. Oh my god, I know it's the end of the act. Just ends. <laughs> Meanwhile, through the whole thing too, the whole thing, Al is there and he's got this amazing outfit on. He's got like this monochrome red outfit that I think was what he was wearing underneath the silver jacket and Kamikaze Kid, just without the jacket. Mm. So it's all monochrome, and then he's got these red suspenders on with all these different colored buttons down the whole front of it like it's amazing like he's mork from work um yeah I, <laughs> I, I didn't notice because i have to say another thing that took me out of this episode and maybe you guys can corroborate this or give me some behind the scenes did it seem to me that almost all of dean's dialogue in the first and second act was adr it seemed like he had a separate soundtrack that didn't match the rest of anything going on in the scenes. And not only that, I don't think he he seemed natural. I think like all of his stuff felt really forced in this episode. I, I don't know that Dean was phoning it in, but he did not find the groove for the stuff they were giving him until the ball game. And that was another thing that just kept taking me out of the episode. I'm like, why is Dean so off in this episode? Did anybody pick up on that? I hadn't noticed any ADR specifically. I, I don't think Charlie Coffey, the writer, really got Al's voice until the second half of the episode. But Dean's usually better than that. That shouldn't matter. But yeah, maybe. It's not something I'd really considered. I didn't really notice. No? All right. I mean, it might be like they had him ADR because like sometimes it would be like a bunch of other dialogue going on and they wanted it clear what he was saying because he would explain a lot of things about Japanese culture to Sam and about Machiko, I guess, because he was stationed there at some point. Yeah, that's that time he ran away from the orphanage and went to Japan. <laughs> <laughs> well, would he have been stationed there in the Navy at some point? I mean, yeah, probably. I'm assuming point. that's what he meant, yeah. stationed. He's been everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I was making a little joke. I think he might have also brought that up um, in Lee Harvey Oswald that he was in Japan at some point. Yeah. yeah, no, I didn't notice that, but um, I did love him in the baseball scene because he was just so into it. Like he was yeah. just like, "It's a beanball, ump! It's a beanball! <laughs> Got my man in the head!" <laughs> it was very good. And then he was like getting really animated, like when uh, Rusty's causing a fight with Sam, and like Sam did not look more like a golden retriever in any other episode than this episode. He's got his flowing <laughs> hair that looks wow. kind of sun kissed, and he's leaping in the air like just like like feet in the air 
to get this baseball and then like they get into a fight and uh al is like doing little fisticuffs in the air like ah i got my fat lip he deserves it it's just very good big big fan of early season two sam's hair <laughs> it was very good there's three or four episodes back to back that just really show it off and this episode was much more brightly lit than others, I feel like. It was very bright and colorful, and uh, his hair just looked golden in the sun <laughs> in the baseball scene. <laughs> you just want to stroke it, don't you? <laughs> I think this is also the episode where, um, blink and you'll miss it. There was a scene where they're at a picnic, right? And there's a dog, and then Sam throws a plate to it. I don't recall that. Oh. I think this happens. Um, I'm going to find it, actually. Does the plate say Frisbee on it? Yeah, it, he invented the Frisbee, what? and I think this what? was no, like a Back cut. Back to the Future 3, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was in this episode, too, and I think this was in the script, but in the episode, all you see is just like, just a dog, and he throws a Frisbee to it, like or a plate, and then they say like he invented the Frisbee or something, but here it's just, you just see him throw a plate at a dog. I'm going to find... I'll tell yeah, you do, the time do exclu- code. Do excuse all the clips that are on, the, the clicks that are happening on the soundtrack right now, because, yeah, obviously I'm bringing up the script. It's It happens during the picnic. I'm going to yeah. find it. The weird thing is I, I've got a summary of all like the important stuff that's notable in the scripts, and I read that just before this. Not actually the script itself, but just the notes. And it's not in my notes as being something... Of importance. All right, go to twenty eight oh three in the episode if you have it ready. Yeah, I'm. I'm just. I'm. I'm. I'm on the script instead. People who are listening at home. Twenty eight oh three. They are at a picnic table. Scott Bakula is next to a dog. He holds a plate and then he throws it, and the dog goes after it. And that's all you see in the episode. But in the script, there's a bit about frisbee in it. <gasps> okay, here it is. <laughs> you see? Yes. You see? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There's the frisbee thing. The dog licks his chops. Sam looks around, then flings the pie tin. The dog catches it in midair. Sam walks off. The dog runs back with it to his owner, who sits on the grass with a friend. You see what your dog just did, Frisbee? So, so is Frisbee the, the owner of the dog? I guess. I, I don't know enough Frisbee? about the history of the Frisbee. Was it a person named Frisbee? I mean, yeah, maybe it was. I'm, I'm joking about what a dumb name, but actually maybe it was somebody's It name. might have been someone's real name. Oh, now we have to look it up because people are going to demand to know. No, it, it, it was invented by Walter Frederick Morrison. Oh, okay. Um, okay. It's lies. Quantum Leap is going to lie to us. So maybe that's why they took it out, because it was inaccurate. It was inaccurate, so they had to cut it. So, But yeah. it does mean I can safely say Frisbee's a dumb name, with, with apologies to <laughs> Mr. Frisbee's that are listening. Yeah, someone who's listening that's named Frisbee is like a single tear is going down their face. <laughs> I love that that's like a cut kiss with history. So if you don't know about it, you wouldn't think about it. But if you're looking at the episode and you see Sam throwing the Frisbee at the dog, that was... A bit. <laughs> Man, I, I'm like a week away from going to print on the next edition of my book. This is like a, a last second insertion. So, okay, so, okay, but now another shocking script revelation. Is it on par with the Ford ice cream cone snafu in Disco Inferno? No, nothing no. will beat that. That's <laughs> <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> so Sam invented the Frisbee. We all know it in our hearts to be true, even though it wound up on the cutting room floor, if it was ever filmed at all. This is just amazing. So this was written, the, the version of the script that Alison and I are both working from was written in August 1989. So this was around about the time that Back to the Future 2 and 3 were starting to come together. Like, 
Bob Gale was thinking the same thing at the same time. Hey, we need, we need to invent the Frisbee. Yeah, I guess everyone's like, well, how did the Frisbee get invented? And, oh, what if someone did a high five and they didn't get it? <laughs> yeah, I guess anything you can do to put in some kind of, like, nostalgia factor. Oh, look, remember Frisbees? Like, they've gone anywhere. He'll invent the jump rope the next episode and then the slinky the episode after that. I feel like the the 90s were, like, the heyday of Frisbees, though, right? I feel like they were just the coolest. And then mm, they, like... What about hacky sex? Yeah, those were pretty big too. And like frisbees, like um, spun off into spin jammers. You remember those things? They had the little cups in the middle of it, and you spun it on your finger. Spin it on your finger, throw it round your back, catch it in the center. It's so easy, it's a snap. Spin jammer jams. Those were the coolest. Frisbees were <laughs> around before the '90s. Well, yeah, yeah. I just <laughs> oh, feel yeah. like the '90s was like the biggest surge in popularity for frisbees, except outside of maybe the '60s. I feel like the '60s on the beach, also. <laughs> I think the frisbee's been an ever-present uh, staple of Americana since it was invented by Sam Beckett in 1953. <laughs> invented in 1937. I feel like the frisbee's not as big today. I don't know. When I was in the 90s, I was playing frisbee golf. So there was not a lot to do in Missouri. Frisbee golf. I played a lot of ultimate frisbee in the in the 90s. What is ultimate frisbee? Yeah, you have to describe that now. Ultimate frisbee, if I remember rightly. This was a long time ago. But ultimate frisbee is basically kind of the rules of rugby slash American football, but with a frisbee. And obviously less uh, all jumping over each other and tackling. But it, it, yeah, it's, it's effectively the rules of American football with a Frisbee. Wow. P- people who actually play Amer- Ultimate Frisbee are cringing right now at that gross simplification. But it is effectively, <laughs> you're, you're throwing it to each other, trying to get it towards an end zone. Okay, that sounds extreme. Yeah, it's. I, I remember really liking it. I thought it was a lot of fun. Oh, players must not run while holding the disc which is obviously not the case in American football and not in rugby. Wait, so you have to, if you get the Frisbee, you have to stand and throw it to somebody else who's running. You have to stop, which is that, is there another popular sport that does that? Like where you've got to, you, you can't run with the ball? Well, basketball, you need to be dribbling. You can't just hold it Basketball, maybe that's, well, I don't know. But yeah, anyway, yeah, it, it kind of tries to ape more common goal-based games. I used to really enjoy it on the basis that I wasn't very sporty and I used to get afraid of balls flying around and possibly hitting me in the head and hurting me. I quite like the fact that a Frisbee was relatively safe and bouncy. Heck yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Sounds fun. That's why um, Charlie was initially attracted to Naomi. She was safe and bouncy. So, <laughs> getting back to Machiko. <laughs> <laughs> she was so mean to Machiko. Like she's like, this is what American girls dress like, and this is what their makeup's <sighs> like. And then everyone compliments each other by saying how fat they are. <laughs> Shut up, Naomi. That goes even further in the script as well, doesn't it? Um... Does it? I just remembered the frisbee thing, and then I didn't commit anything else to <laughs> the important parts. Oh yeah. So um, after she said, "Yeah, congratulations, your prosperity. You're both very, very fat." And then she gets corrected, and she's she's about to shuffle off, but then she remembers she's been told how to say goodbye, and so she says, "Maybe I will see you again when you're hot to trot." <laughs> and that's when everyone goes, "What the hell?" And oh. then she leaves, and that's when she realizes she's been had. And that's literally what it says in the script. Machiko senses she may have been had. And then she has that confrontation with Naomi. Naomi-san, you lied to me about American customs. 
Now, why would I do that? I think you are not a very nice person. Yeah, I like that confrontation. I like any time Machiko stood up for herself, and I think the script also does her a disservice to make her into um, as stupid as she needs to be in any given situation. She seems to know enough English and enough of the social norms to know um, that Lenore is... This is not normal, right? This is not how mothers-in-law in in America treat their daughters. And she realizes that she's got an uphill battle with that. But then just these blatant insults, like, I, I, I don't know. Like, Machiko seems like really smart and brave. Like she, she'll come to another country with a new husband by herself and get to the husband's house somehow by herself alone from the bus station, not complain about it, and then be gullible enough to insult somebody based on the say-so of a person that's literally in front of her trying to fuck her husband. Yeah. So it's just like, what? Like why? Machiko, poor Machiko. Script does her many disservices. Yeah, I feel like there were some parts of the episode that felt like they were a little condescending to her or she was written a little stereotypical. But I mean, I don't know. I can't like speak for anyone uh, who's actually Japanese or Asian, you know, like what they would think of this portrayal of of Japanese culture in this episode. I just felt like some of it, like when, when Sam does the speech, you know, about equal rights to her and stuff, it just felt a little too talking down i don't know no no yeah it's a little condescending right and but i think that that's it still seems genuine like and again maybe that's just because i like scott and i thought that those were the scenes that i enjoyed the most i think he he played it really well Mm. i think both of them played it really well because you felt like they really liked each other i just don't know about like writing wise what other people thought of it if I was just seeing something that maybe is not there, but it felt a little bit like that sometimes. But I do think like the performances felt very genuine from them. So like I was really rooting for Machiko because it just felt like she was a really sweet person. Yeah. And if there are, you know, I'm sure that we have some Japanese listeners or Japanese American listeners that might have a greater insight into this. If you do, please write us and let us know what you think of the portrayal of Machiko in this. Was it just 80s TV bullshit? Was it it (laughs) genuine? Was it, what was it? Like, how did it come across? Does it age well? Is it a thing where it seemed okay for the time, but now it's just like, oh, no, you know, it, <laughs> I'd be, yeah, because it's so sweet. So it kind of gets in under the radar, but is it is it still problematic? Just curious to know about that. Yeah. What I loved about that scene, though, the one that's on the porch, it's such a small thing, but they're so good together that it comes to life and you don't even realize that it's just one long take. Where they just do a slow, slow, slow push into the two of them. But that's got to be like a three, four minute take that no cuts, no nothing. They just nail it in one. And it was, it was terrific. Same thing with when she's picking the flowers, even though that's more stage business. Like there's not a lot to screw up there. You just have to kind of stand and watch her do it. Yeah, it was cute. But another sort of just, just nice long scene of her doing her thing. Like Machiko being Machiko. Yeah, like uh, Sam was teaching her how to drive because she misunderstood him when he said, do you want to drive into town? He's kind of scared. Uh, one thing I, I only noticed this time around, too, um, <laughs> was that uh, when she has the bit where she is shaking the bugs off of the flowers, that's a repeat of what the mom was doing yes. earlier in the episode with the flowers oh. from Naomi. Naomi, where'd you get these flowers? Alongside the road. Why? Honestly, they're filled with bugs. You're supposed to shake them off before you. Is is that an old Japanese custom? Oh, no. 
I shake bugs off. <laughs> I guess maybe that was their way of saying, you know, we're we're not so different after all. <laughs> kind of thing. I hadn't I hadn't even picked up on that. That's nice. Oh uh, no, I picked up on that right away because it was a little clunky. Yeah, I, I guess I just never paid attention to that. And I'm like, oh, okay, I see what they were doing. Yeah, we're all the same. But um, it's funny because that scene in the beginning when uh, Lenore is bitching at Naomi that she didn't shake the bugs off, more just casual judgment. She's basically calling Naomi the whore. The way I heard it, you didn't exactly wait, Naomi. Yeah, maybe she just didn't like her because she was kind of like, I wouldn't call her a whore, but... Maybe she was like, you know, she's being judgy of her because she was sleeping around and yeah, she was but just that's trying I mean. to get with her. And now she's trying to get with Charlie. Yeah, but I think like, okay, I guess I should I should clarify here. I don't think there's anything wrong with if someone wants to casually sleep around. I think there was something wrong when you're trying to uh, non-consensually do it with people like she was doing with Charlie. I think that was the part that was problematic. What I was pointing out there was the fact that Lenore was just casually judging her. And this is just who Lenore is. She's just yeah. she's just a monster. So no matter it, it doesn't have to be Machiko. She would have as much problem with Naomi, right? Well, because she's sleeping around, and like her daughter w- was knocked up when she killed herself, or you know after you know yeah, she was probably projecting some of that onto her. Insert toxic reason here. Yeah, and she was also the according to Naomi, the one person who stuck with her daughter when she was going through that. So. I don't know. I think also she just didn't like her because she was kind of annoying. I think she was just kind of annoying. Yeah, she was. <laughs> uh, Naomi. But it was a good portrayal. I thought Eleanor Wool did a great job. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, listen, she ran with what they gave her. And I can't fault any of the actors in this episode for the things I didn't like about it. They all did wonderful with what they were given. I just didn't like what they were given. And I mean, Kay Callan did so well that I couldn't stand her. So, I mean, that's, you know, slow clap right there. She was so awful. She was great. <laughs> the fact that you're compared to Kai Wynn, I think, is that's a good sign. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that is high praise indeed. <laughs> a huge compliment. Yeah. Someone that didn't work for me quite as well. Um, pity party, Rusty. I was playing baseball, <laughs> and then I went to the war. When I came back, they wouldn't let me play baseball, and that was the fault of the Japanese. <laughs> and he compares himself to Homer from the best years of our lives, who got his hands blown off. That's me. I'm the guy from best years of our lives. You took my arms. <laughs> I was waiting for him to say that he was injured somehow, and he can't pitch the same, but no, it's just that he aged out because he had to go to war. Yeah. He's projecting all of his issues onto a whole people and onto Machiko when, you know, it's it's not their fault. It's not her fault. You know, uh, yeah, he's projecting a lot of stuff. I do love the trajectory of this episode because it goes from a smaller story about racism and acceptance and uh, and all of the stuff that we've talked about. But then they're like, how do we have an action scene to conclude this. How, what do we fight? We can't fight racism. What if this baseball guy shows up and then he kidnaps Machiko in the middle of a storm? Like she runs out of the storm cellar because Lenore's being mean to her. So uh, she gets picked up by Rusty. He kidnaps her to do some sort of untoward business. And uh, then Sam comes to rescue her. And in the midst of the fight... Uh, Machiko gets hit in the head with a rock or something. Something hits her in the head and she's injured. Meanwhile, Sam is fighting Rusty in this barn in the middle of a storm. 
and this guy is trying to murder him. Yes. He's going to put his face into a saw or something. It was a grinder. Like, it was a grinder. It was a grinder. <laughs> grinding wheel. His face toward a grinder. <laughs> Insane. And I love that the whole thing is scored with just storm noises. I legit love that. It was great. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just so weird, though. They go from that to the hospital and then a slow fade to the church and they're getting married. Yeah, suddenly it's like back to like gentle, you know, like it goes from like that to like anyway. <laughs> like how long did that take? Did, did, did we miss the scene where Sam gets the constable on Rusty and gives him a statement about how kidnapping, assault and attempted murder like is Rusty in jail? Yeah, what happened to that guy? What happened at the end of that? I hope he's in jail. I, yeah. Is there something in the script about Rusty being in jail? <laughs> I actually, I really, I thought there was something very good about seeing Scott Bakula in that teal blue shirt, slightly dirty from rolling around, his uh, magnificent hair kind of must with just slight blood on his face after just doing an action scene. Like, <laughs> that was very good, actually. It was almost better than shirtless Scott. It was better than shirtless Scott. It was action Scott, you know? And then he had to re rescue Machko. Al was like, you gotta save her! And then they go into the tender stuff. That's what's great about Scott Bakula. You know, he could rough people up and then he's so tender, you know? <laughs> Allison is in a completely different place. So, Matt... <laughs> <laughs> We're going to give Alice in a moment. Uh, so do you think that Al almost spilled the beans about Donna? Because it seems like he did. Al, I'm sweating here. You didn't the first time. I'm married? Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm never sure about that. Like, retrospectively, I think it's very easy to retcon that in. I always assumed it was, it was an offhand gag in the script and that there wasn't that much thought put into, oh, star-crossed. Especially since this is not a staff writer that wrote it. So, yeah, I don't think that was intentional, but absolutely headcanon, 100%. Yeah, retroactively, sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't yeah. think they were planning Donna, you know, this far in advance or anything like that. I don't think they were intending it to be a reference to Donna. It may have been intended to be left vague enough that maybe Sam is married. I don't know. But I don't think they intended it to be Donna. But I think in retrospect, it is very funny. Yeah, I think it fits happily in with what we know. So I'm going to call that a happy accident. And I think Al did slip up there because he's still new to this whole leaping thing. Relatively new anyway. And he'd rather be in Vegas anyway. So <laughs> yeah, I love that when Sam's waxing nostalgic about the farm and then he's talking about like cows mooing for milk or whatever. Like just the most saccharine bullshit dialogue of I love the farm. And then you cut to him and he has this doofy look on his face and then Al's standing next to him, hand on his hip, like, ugh. Personally, I'd rather be in Vegas. Vegas? Al, how can you say that? Look around you. I did look around. I'm glad I'm a hologram. I almost stepped in it. <laughs> <laughs> like he knows what Sam's inner monologue is about already. Like, ugh. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. For some reason, Dean just seemed completely off in those scenes. It seems so forced. Did it's he? Oh, my God. Yeah. Go back and rewatch it. I don't think he did. Yeah. I, I, I really don't see the issue. <laughs> okay. Then maybe it's just me. I'm willing to cop to it. All right. There's some like early stuff where I can see it. But in this episode, I thought he was fine. I thought he had lots of good moments. It wasn't like the most Al-centric episode, but I felt like, you know, he was used well. And I did like the scene, too, when uh, Sam's driving to find Machko and then Al shows up to direct him there. And then he drives through him. And yeah. Sam's like, you know, freaking out like, ah, because he's just ran through Al. 
thought that was really good. <laughs> we have to show off that as a hologram again this episode. Yeah. And it's such an easy effect to do, right? You have like the car going through him and you do like the blue screen effect. And then you have from inside the car, you just have him standing there and like with I guess the front part of the the cars removed or something like but they don't have to actually do an effect there just have him stand in what they were filming in yeah I have no idea how any of that works but I figure it's got to be some kind of composite shot that's that's pretty quick and easy to do well the um they I think a lot of productions not every production but um they sometimes have pieces of a car to film when you're like Mm -hmm. filming front at the actors that does not have the front of the car on it so you can have the camera there because it's not meant to actually be driving they might have it like on a um a track or something you know where they're pulling it forward but they do have stunt cars for filming which is probably what they used it just didn't have a front so they filmed it from the inside and had dean stockwell standing there where there should be the front of the car and it looks like he's standing in the middle of the car all right did everybody get that? I have. I need, <laughs> I need a visual guide. Can someone do a YouTube video on how that works? But uh, I thought it was neat regardless. And the fact that they had him out in the storm, but he wasn't apparently affected by the wet or the weather or anything. That was another thing that they made look like he was incongruous to the scene, which really works. Yeah. He had on that nice black vest too, you know, like a very kind of understated owl outfit. No, um, no imaging chamber door in this episode. No imaging chamber door until what price Gloria? There's never been one since the the double doors from. Yeah, uh, well, all right. Yeah, sorry. I should say. Yeah. No, so no, but I mean yeah, the, the one the, that we that we know of. The one that we know of premieres in what price, Gloria? Although the animation effect is slightly different. Uh, we'll get onto that. Ooh. Um But yeah, yeah. There's the glowy door from the next episode onwards. Oh, okay, cool, cool. So mm-hmm. that'll be some lore from that episode. So. But how would we know what episode comes next? Because the leap out at the end of this one <laughs> is him uh, leaping into um, the color of truth again. Jesse Tyler. Jesse Tyler. Yeah, and this is the one where the, um, although it does leap out into color of truth, that repeat got cancelled. Oh, so it's like he just, he just keeps leaping into Jesse Tyler <laughs> over and over and over again. So the, the episode that aired immediately after this one was two weeks later, uh, which was What Price Gloria? But yeah, Color of Truth was meant to go in the middle. I want to say that was the earthquake coverage that stopped that. Ah, so it was Ben's fault. The earthquake that was uh, QL 2022 was set in in the original pilot? Yeah. It all comes together. There we go. Well, we already saw the leap into Gloria anyway at the end of Seymour. So we'll always have that. Yeah, I think it's interesting. The season finale of season one goes into What Price Gloria, but then the first episode isn't What Price Gloria. And then Mm -hmm. when What Price Gloria comes up, the leap out leading into it is Color of Truth. Yes. Presumably, had had Color of Truth aired, then the Color of Truth repeat would have leapt into What Price Gloria. But since that, that was never aired, it's never been seen like that. And Alison, that that entire sentence that you just said would be well nigh incomprehensible to all but a select few of the population <laughs> that are quantumly fans. <laughs> Can you imagine getting that out of context? Be like, what? <laughs> I guess if there's people listening to this podcast who have not listened to every one of them and want a bit more explanation about it, what price Gloria was produced for season one or in the season one block, even though it wasn't it was meant to be aired in season two. So they had the leap out at the end of season one going into it. And then uh, for whatever reason, the schedule got changed 
changed. I don't know if we've had a, an official explanation for it. I think they just didn't want to start with the woman leap. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, it was a risky gamble at the time doing that. So that one aired later. And the reason why uh, a lot of season two episodes had leap outs that uh, were from previous episodes was because they were reruns that they were leading into. And so that's why you get a lot of weird uh, same leaps from earlier on. It gets all jumbled up and that gets sorted out later. But I guess they aired a, a lot of season one alongside season two. Yeah, the whole of season one ended up getting aired again throughout season two. And Color of Truth got aired a lot, which is why you see Jesse Tyler many times, because that episode, uh, it did really well. That was a good showcase of the show. I think that's why they wanted that one to be aired more. Yeah. So what you're telling me is this is not the last time we talk about Jesse Tyler. No. No. (laughs) Jesse Tyler is prevalent (laughs) throughout Quantum Leap. (laughs) Well, the the next time will be the rescheduled repeat uh, after the earthquake. So it got pushed back to later in season two. If you were watching this for the first time, but you knew the premise, would you think like, oh, he leaped into the same scenario, maybe something else is going on. And then you're like, oh, it it didn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) I think I know what a rerun is. So I always thought that would be interesting if they had an like an episode where he had leaped back into the same leap, like in a different person. That would be so cool. You know, do a Back to the Future type thing. <laughs> back to the Future 2, I guess. Well, leap, die, repeat. A little bit. A little bit. To an extent. Yeah. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see how much they play with it, if they're willing to play with it. The one thing that yeah. was great about Quantum Leap is it didn't need gimmicks like that. Even the season five episodes that were as gimmicky did not need to be so gimmicky because the heart of the show was there. So all that stuff... It would be nice, but it's not necessary. And honestly, I don't really miss it. I just like Back to the Future 2 because I think it's wacky. So, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we need more of that. So before we start to go into any kind of final thoughts, one thing I just wanted to point out. um, I think this episode, more than any, is really replete with um, repeat use of familiar... Uh, locations <gasps> yes there's several locations here that um, it, you know obviously a lot of this is shot on the same back lot but um there's something about magico that it just seems to be some really iconic ones so you've got the the picnic is the same location that's used in one strobe over the line and the opening of uh leap between the states the disney ranch with a very noticeable bridge the ds9 bridge i call it was that is that that bridge as well yeah, in Deep Space Nine, they have Benjamin and um, Jake fishing, and I believe it's the same bridge. I know the one you mean. That would make sense. The uh, Oak Creek is the second and final time, if I remember rightly, that uh, they use the Warner Brothers 1950s town backlot, which they used in Color of Truth as well, before they start using the universal Back to the Future town square every other time they leap to the 50s. So second use of that. And I'm, I've never been 100% certain, but I'm reasonably, I'm reasonably sure that Sam says like, oh, yeah, yeah, this, this isn't Indiana and this reminds me of my dad. And then he goes to the farm that ends up being the farm that he grew up in. That, that big red barn in the background looks very much like the barn in The Leap Home to me. <laughs> no wonder it reminds him of it. I mean, it's a red barn. so it's- Shouldn't there be a ball field in the corn then? <laughs> wasn't, wasn't that the same one from Field of Dreams? They all lived in Field of Dreams. Yeah, I was, I was looking for the Field of Dreams clip in this one, but unfortunately not. I think that was all I spotted 
Yeah, thanks for bringing yeah. that up. I was going to ask you about that bridge because I said, oh my, that's the Leap Between the States bridge. Yeah, and the Lion Bridge. But yes, I think of it as the Leap Between the States bridge, mainly. Well, cool. Cool. Too bad it's going to be the last time. Oh, well. Oh, well, 1950s. We're going to have to go to the, what is the Universal Backlot? Yes. But that's fine, because then it means every time we see the um, the courthouse after this, we can we can get all back to the future Fanny. You're going to have to... Uh... You said Fanny. And you live in the yeah, UK. No, I know, I realised after I said it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's even ruder in Britain. Yeah, wow. <laughs> um, so, so you're going to have to point that out to me next time because I have not had any concrete sightings of that because I never think of that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. when we get to an episode where they're at the courthouse before it was struck by lightning, you let me know so that I can yeah. geek out with you. So I can get all fanny with you. See what I did there? <laughs> I, d- I did want to note also this is another one that was uh before sam's birthday it was yes. four days before sam was born yeah yeah just to note it <laughs> although i think it, by the time the episode's ended he's been born right this takes place over a few days Maybe. i mean i guess yeah. if machiko has been in the hospital or whatever yeah yeah it, it takes place over at, at least three days um there's three days that we see for sure and then there's however long it took time for her to recover enough to go and get married right which is obviously Donald P. Belsario's statement about um, when life begins and uh, yeah. and all that. Yeah, of course, I'm like teasing. <laughs> yeah, I was going to I asked Deborah about this because I was like, yeah, really? And she's like, she said, nah, I think people just weren't concentrating. <laughs> it was the writer's room. We, we were just looking at 1953. So we're talking about fannies and abortion. Is there anything else that we want to talk about, Magical, or should we get some final thoughts? <laughs> Ooh, yeah, let's. I, I think that's it. Uh, I didn't change my opinion any. I, I think it was fine. Uh, I get why some people wouldn't like it, though. Uh, I don't think it's like the strongest of season two, but I think it's got a lot of stuff that uh, that I personally enjoy. So, Okay. How about you, Matt? Yeah, I, I still hold this uh, in very high regard as one of the best episodes of the second season. It's a lot of fun. There's some great characters in it, some of whom are a little bit... Um, uh, <laughs> blunt instrument in their in their approach but it's still fun and uh, i'm now just really happy that i get to uh, go and add sam invented the frisbee into my book <laughs> before it prints uh, i can't believe i'd missed that so I'm, yeah i'm very happy right now you're welcome sir you're welcome so yeah and i guess maybe i was a little too hard on the episode when we first started I I really think as I'm talking to you guys, what's my problem? And I think it's just the episode did not live up to the fond feeling I had for it. It was much different than I expected it to be. And it kind of threw me for a loop. And just Kay's performance as Lenore Hmm. really just grated against me throughout the entire thing, which it was supposed to. So, I mean, in that sense, it's a triumph. It's really good. It's just not what I recalled it to be. I wish there was just more of the scenes like they had between Machiko and Sam. Again, Lila Lee Olsen was was a delight in the episode and she and Scott had some great chemistry. So, So I guess, you know, in a few years when I'm thinking back on the episode, that's all I'm going to remember because what else is there? If you just want that good old quantum leap feeling, they delivered it with that. So I think that puts the Americanization of Machiko in the books. And before we go, Matt, do you recall at the end of the last episode, because I'm just recalling now, I said I had one very specific question for you about Machiko. How come in a lot of the places that I see this listed, it is sometimes called Machiko McKenzie and not the Americanization of Machiko? Was, was that an alternate title or... Um, so the only official source I've ever seen, including Mackenzie, 
is the first edition of the Louis Chunovic book, the Quantum Leap book. Now, that was an episode guide that came out in the 90s that was mainly based on production paperwork that Chunovic put into the book, wrote some fluff around it and there's loads of photos and it's all very lovely but a lot of what's a lot of the text in there is directly from production paperwork now we know throughout the show's history there were several times that uh, there were like official lists of synopses the the writer's room were using just to keep track of what they'd done and where they'd gone in the past so i suspect one of those lists said mckenzie on it and that was the version that Chanovic was writing from. I can't say that for certain, but Chanovic is the only one that officially said it. Hey, Matt. Yeah? Open up the front page of the script. Is it on the script as well? It says much go Mackenzie on the front page. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've closed it down. Just Machiko Mackenzie or the Americanization of Machiko Mackenzie? No, it just says Quantum Leap Machiko Mackenzie, August 4th, 1953, written by Charlie Coffey. I stand... Vindicated. <laughs> no, I'm talking about the full title, The Americanization of Machiko McKenzie. Sorry, which is what I thought that Chris was talking about. Oh, no, no, I've never seen it. I've never seen it. It's either one way or the other in what I've seen. It's either The Americanization of Machiko or Machiko McKenzie. Oh, okay. So the Quantum Leap book, yes, and the script does also... There's another part of the Quantum Leap book that just calls it Machiko McKenzie. Um, but there's one page in the Quantum Leap book that calls it The Americanization of Machiko McKenzie. And I'm sorry, Chris, I misunderstood the question. I was answering a different question. <laughs> well, Allison answered it. So obviously at some point it was Machiko McKenzie and then it was changed to the Americanization of Machiko. And um, I guess we have no further information than the evidence of our eyes. The script says one thing, the title on the screen says the other thing. So yeah. I mean, I guess they just changed the title and then it might have ended up, you know, in TV Guide or some other thing. Like they gave them the title Machiko McKenzie, you know, like it happens sometimes if they have to like give them a blurb or something and they hadn't changed their mind yet. The Chunovic book, the text that it takes, the production paperwork text that it takes also in a lot of cases matches what was in TV Guide. So it was obvious though that paperwork was sent to TV Guide as well. So, mm. yeah, quite quite possibly in the TV guide listings, it may well have said that as well. Yeah, I think I've seen it on streaming called that as well, so... But definitely, any fans out there, and there were a lot of us in the 90s referring to the Chanovic book as, as our Bible, I, I think I mentally called it the, Ameri the Americanization of Machiko McKenzie, the full, full title, uh, for years <laughs> as a result of that book, so... Okay. Yeah, that TV guide, all kinds of things, but yes, I mean... <laughs> That's an obscure question to ask, Chris, when a lot of the scripts went through multiple titles. This is by far not the only one. All right. I'm sorry. This was the only one that I've ever seen out in the wild where I see two different titles on an episode. So No, no, that's fine. So there's no need to throw a baseball at my head. And I think that puts our discussion of Machiko McKenzie or the Americanization thereof in the books. Uh, we are going to go to a break. But when we come back, we will be speaking with the inimitable Kay Callen. Stay tuned. Sam. The QLP is brought to you by listeners like you. Please go to patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast and give as much as you can. For as little as a dollar a month, you can be a contributor to the quantum leap podcast. It goes to covering our server cost and helps keep the podcast going. Thank you. On the latest episode of Fangin. 
There's a lot of Star Trek stuff going on in my life right now, so I figured what better to talk about. When other guys my age were kissing girls, I was memorizing the Mike Okuda chronology. <laughs> you may be the only Chakotay cosplayer that ever existed. <laughs> exactly. I was actually that angry fan who didn't like Next Gen because it was usurping my childhood. Remember when the captain would make out with the green-skinned <laughs> women? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you guys are making me want to go and watch your original series now. Can we hurry up and stop this? Very have the captain threaten to punch a woman in the face. <laughs> he was going to knock her on her ass. Thank you very much. Really endearing intro to Archer. I have an NX-01 baseball cap. I have total faith of the heart now. Nice. Riker making pizza was the best part, though. <laughs> I would watch a show where it's just Riker making pizza. That's the next spinoff we need. To find out how to hear this and other Patreon-exclusive shows, go to patreon.com slash Podcast. That's patreon.com slash Quantum Leap Podcast. Come over here, Chris, and let's watch Spock's brain. (laughs) (laughs) There's a spot here just for you. How I've waited for this moment. Hi, it's Kay Callan, and you're listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. I had no idea that we were going to be in such a like a like a rabbit's warren, right? Going down the rabbit yeah. hole with with that Machiko stuff. That was uh, very interesting. Who knew there was so much to talk about with Machiko, both behind the scenes yeah. and in front of the camera? So hi, everyone. We're back. Um, say hi. Mm-hmm. Hi. Hello. Hi. Hello. So, um, as promised, here is our interview with Kay Cameron. We are pleased today to have with us a legend of stage and screen, Miss Kay Callan. Callan's professional career began at Margot Jones Theater in her hometown of Dallas, and she has continued through regional, off-Broadway, Broadway, films, and television. Her big break came with her first film role, Joe. Her portrayal of Peter Boyle's mousy wife brought her glowing reviews in the New York Times. A voting member of both the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, Callan is also a past member of the Board of Directors of the Screen Actors Guild. Her most visible television role was playing Superman's mom in the ABC hit comedy Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. A regular on four television series and a guest star on scores of episodes, Callan has played a demented Miss Daisy for Tyler Perry on Meet the Browns and a crime boss on The Mentalist. But of course, Quantum Leap fans know her as Lenore McKenzie from the Americanization of Machico. How are you, Miss Kellen? I'm just fine, thank you. I'm happy to hear from you. I really enjoyed this episode, and uh, you played a really good part in it. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about the whole experience of filming Quantum Leap? Oh, golly, it was a really long time ago. Uh, I remember we shot it over at Universal, uh, and I remember... Um, fondly how what a lovely person Scott was uh, and everybody in, involved with it was just terrific and the other thing is that I'm always amazed at people on the street who come up I mean this is however many years later come up to me and remember that episode and can quote things from it that I can't even quote um, but it was it was a it was a very interesting thing to film do you remember Anything about your character? Like, was it difficult to play maybe a little bit of a racist or at least uh, someone struggling with uh, the guilt of not helping her daughter so she eventually committed suicide? Well, um, 
of course, all of the all of the above. Um, but you know, as actors, our whole job is to be able to go to all these places and play these things. And as far as the racist element of it, um, probably we all know people who are like this that we go, oh my goodness, and we kind of absorb, you know, what that's like and have the ability to kind of play that back to someone and those feelings. You know, she was filled with so many different emotions, you know, that her son was back, that she'd lost her daughter, that her son was back, and now she's kind of lost her son to this woman who is somebody. And in that particular time, you know, we were, uh, the Japanese people were, you know, up in concentration camps, they didn't call them that, but in camps up, you know, in Northern California, they'd all been, you know, taken away from regular life. And so I think that there was a lot of prejudice, you know, the same kind of prejudice that exists today for various groups. So um, there was that, and and it was a pleasure to play the part where she finally comes to a place where she understands that she was wrong and she makes the right moves. I originally saw this episode when it first aired, and I was uh, probably a young teenager, and the ending of that really uh, touched my heart, seeing your character in a kimono at the end. Yeah, it was it was fun to wear that kimono, too. And you know what? I don't believe I have seen that episode since, you know, since I saw it on television when we did it. You know, back in those days, we didn't have uh, recording ability to, you know, keep a copy of something and save it. Uh, and I don't know whether I, I don't remember having seen it someplace, you know, where I could have recorded it or gotten a copy of it. So I haven't seen it way since that time. It's a pretty good episode. It really holds up. Uh, I think it's out on DVD and it's on Netflix and all that stuff. Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to Netflix that and take a look at it myself. I'm sure a lot of listeners would like to know a little bit about your experience on Lois and Clark: The New Adventures of Superman. Uh, well, uh, not a, not a bad moment. Um, I, uh, as a matter of fact, I've been talking a lot about Lois and Clark lately because it's, it's 20 years since we did Lois and Clark and it's like the 75th year of Superman. And so there've been a lot of, um, press and, and online things about that. And, uh, I actually, it's so interesting that you asked that because tomorrow I am having lunch with. Deborah Joy Levine, who created the show, and Bob Butler, who directed our pilot. Um, so it's it's not all lost down in history. You know, we're still all talking to each other and and reminiscing about, oh, those days. You are still on television today in all kinds of television shows. Uh, a lot of my favorites, like How I Met Your Mother, that was a very funny part you did. That was a wonderful thing I got to do. It was just so much fun. And that show... That particular show plays so much. What was your experience like on uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine? I'm a big Star Trek fan, and uh, I probably first recognized you from that. Well, actually, that was probably the most interesting story of all, because I had to have a prosthetic for that. And so I had to go in, you know, on a particular day, and, you know, they put that cast on you, which I withstood a lot better in those days than I do these days. Because I can't remember what I worked on. Oh, I guess when I was on Nip Tuck, they did another one, and I had to be under that stuff, and it's, it's quite an ordeal. But anyway, so we, they did that, and so it means that every morning you would come to work, you know, at 5 in the morning, and it was a long time 
that they put that on you, and then at night you might finish at 10 at night, and they've already built another hour in for them to take it off. And when we first started shooting it, I was like, oh, my God, this is so interesting. How interesting this is. Oh, this is so much fun. And then by the by the last day that I was shooting, it was like, oh, my goodness, the poor people who are on this show every day and have to put all this stuff on. I mean, that's that's a very big deal. It's a very big deal. Yeah, uh, from what I understand, you get to a point where you just can't wear it any longer. Well, I think you just, you know, I just, one would have, one would have thought before they were on that show, before I was on that show, oh, wouldn't it be great to have a job on this every day? And it was like, no, it really wouldn't be. <laughs> it's just, you know, you're there, you never see the sun. You know, you get there before the sun comes up, and you leave way after it's down, and you've spent all this time in makeup, and if it were a movie, you know that there's an end date, but if it's a popular television series, that's not the way it goes. Besides being an accomplished actress, you're also an author. Uh, yes, I have a, a series of books for actors, writers, and directors about how to get work in the business. They're marketing books. They, they don't tell you how to act, write, or direct, but once you know how to do that, and now you're, you know, most people are like, well, I can figure out how you do that, but how do you ever get a job? So... I did a lot of research, and so I have books for those folks. I saw your uh, film on uh, your books in the bookstore. That was oh, yes, really- right, right. Uh, I enjoyed doing that, and uh, Suzanne uh, Ky- Kylie, who is in it with me, uh, she's a young actress that I had known, and I asked her to be in it with me, and she gave me the two biggest laughs in it, so I gave her co-writing credit because she's, She's just a brilliant comedian and writer, and I'm so happy that she did that with me. If anybody's interested in these books, uh, some of the titles are The Los Angeles Agents Book, How to Sell Yourself as an Actor, The Script is Finished, Now What Do I Do?, and among many others. And uh, where can they find copies of that? Uh, Well, they're at bookstores, but also they can go to kcallen.com, and there'll be a whole page with all the books, and you can see what book and what they're about and order one if you want to. But they're also at Barnes & Noble and like that. My mom actually wanted me to uh, tell you that you were on her favorite episode of All in the Family. Oh, that was a wonderful episode. What a what a gift that I got to do that. Um, that is a an episode that has changed many lives. That was quite a groundbreaking episode in its day because it was back to prejudice. It was about uh, gay prejudice. And it was right when Anita Bryant, for those people who are old enough to know who that was, who was a big orange juice spokesman and a very, and maybe she'd been a big singer or something. I think that's why she was a celebrity and did that. And anyway, she'd come out with this big campaign against school teachers, any school teachers being gay or whatever. And so that was the whole theme of this had to do with that. And uh, I've had people stop me all over the world um, and all these years later and say, that episode changed my life. You know, I was like 10 years old and my parents, you know, were very prejudiced about gay people and I dare not say who I was. And then after that episode, my dad was like, well, gosh, I guess they're, they're just regular people. And, and it's, it's, it was a wonderful show. They won Emmys for it and well-deserved and, and so happy to have been a part of that. I watched it a few days ago, and it still holds up really well. And I think it's still relevant for uh, today's times. There's still a lot of uh, prejudiced people out there that just don't get it. 
Yes, there are. Uh, I'm not sure, uh, although, as, you, as this guy said, you know, it, it really changed his parents' viewpoint, but I think people who are in their bones so prejudiced, I don't know what's going to change that. Unless, you know, somebody in their family turns out to be gay, and then they have to deal with it, although sometimes, you know, the person in your family is gay and you don't deal with it, you just never speak to them again, so. Well, hopefully shows like uh, that episode of All in the Family and... Uh Many episodes of Quantum Leap uh, might yeah. might educate people or at least get them thinking about their beliefs. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, there has been so much change over these years, you know, in so many areas, you know, gay and the whole uh, African-American experience and everything. That, yeah, although there's a lot of, as you say, a lot of folks who who are still prejudiced and so forth, but there has been a lot of, a lot of, progress probably due in part a lot to uh people seeing stuff like this and uh, being able to talk about it and not just keeping quiet on the subject yes uh, I, I think that's and the other thing is and so important is people who are not prejudiced having the courage to speak up when they're talking to their friend who it turns out is prejudiced instead of just being quiet and just letting it go by you know, people who have the courage to to speak up and say, well, hey, what are you talking about? And I don't feel that way. I think that makes a big difference. I like that. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's why everything seems to be getting better, I hope. Well, I remember uh, when Martin Luther King was assassinated, and I was living in Norman, Oklahoma at the time. And it was, and I had been in Dallas when Kennedy was assassinated. And, but when Martin Luther King was assassinated, I remember writing an editorial to the newspaper there saying, you know, that I had been at parties where bigoted people would, you know, take off against the, the black community. And I would just, you know, not want to make fuss and et cetera and just kind of blend into the woodwork. And I just said, this will never happen again. You know, I'm never going to just stand there when somebody is saying something and not speak up. Because when you don't speak up, you're just nodding assent that they just assume you agree. Very true and very uh, brave to do that also, especially back then. Well, you know, it's it's still always hard to be in a group where everybody else says yes and you're saying no or vice versa. You were uh, born in Dallas, Texas, right? I was. So, was. like you and said... my kids were all born there, too, so... Although we've been, you know, gone from there for many years. Being in Dallas or Texas when the president got assassinated, what was that like for you? Oh, well, it was a horrible day for Dallas. Um, couldn't believe it. Although, um, at that point in time, Dallas was... Well, Adlai Stevenson had been there some months before, and he'd been, you know, how people are holding placards, this thing, signs, you know, that say whatever, and somebody had hit him on the head with one of those signs. And there were those of us who were uneasy and did not think it was a good idea for Kennedy to come, because it was just very you know, very hateful at that time. And and so, I mean, we left shortly after that. I was happy to move away. I I mean, I've been back since then, and I love Dallas, and my family is there, but it was a dark time. Such a horrible thing would happen. Nothing like that had ever happened on U.S. soil. You just can't believe that. Yeah, it still affects people to this day, and it happened over 50 years ago now. Yeah. Quantum Leap actually does a two-part episode dealing with the assassination of Kennedy. Did you ever see that? I think I did, but my memory is totally dim on it on this day. I don't remember anything about it. A lot of people might remember you from Joe. Could you tell us a little bit about the movie from 1970? 
well, that was a long time ago. You're saying all my oldest credits. Uh, that was another movie about prejudice. Uh, and that was a very exciting thing that happened. I was living in New York then. Um, I got this part in this movie that everybody associated with it thought, well, this is a movie no one is ever going to see because it was an, an independent movie that cost, you know, about 25 cents to make. And I think we each got paid a nickel. Uh, but um, the movie came out, and the movie was successful. But almost simultaneously, I don't know whether you remember this, uh, the Kent State Massacre happened, which mirrored the events in the film. And so then the film really took off. As frequently happens, a movie comes out, and then in a short period of time, something will happen in the real world that is the same thing. And then it really catches fire. And that certainly happened in that film which was um, the story of uh, Peter Boyle. The, the, he became a big star in that movie, a hard hat who, uh, and it was during, um, you know, the 70s when, you know, the East Village and hippies and love, peace, make, make love, not, not war, all that whole thing was happening. He was, he was very prejudiced and against the youth and against, you know, the hippies and so forth. And Susan Sarandon, it was her first film, and, and she became a star out of it or certainly well on her way to her career. And uh, so it was, it was a pretty thrilling movie for all of us. Very interesting experience. Very hard to watch at times, especially uh, Peter Boyle in the bar going on and on about yeah. different racism yeah. things. But, you know, important, yeah. important and though. He really, he really um, wrote a lot of that. He, he was somebody who had been in Second City in Chicago, and he was a great improviser and kind of that character um, – was a character that he kind of had in his pocket, that belligerent, you know, bigoted guy. And so the movie was originally called The Gap, as in The Generation Gap, and it was more centered on Susan and her father, the the advertising guy played by Dennis Patrick. But then when they cut it all together and they saw what they had in this performance with Peter, then the whole movie changed focus and it became Joe. And, uh, and it would not have been the success it was had they not refocused it that way. Um, very good movie. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you should, for our listeners. Um, uh, most recently, you've been working on Getting On, the TV series. You play yes, Su- yes. Susan Dayward. Yes. <laughs> yes. Poor Susan Dayward, who came into the hospital for a routine operation on her niece and she was a runner and she was being proactive to make things better and she left in a wheelchair and will never walk again will never run again she can walk sometime but not run what part do you get recognized for the most i think probably superman's mom uh certainly when somebody stops me on the street and says i know you i know you i try never to i try to just say oh well yeah i've done a lot of stuff and they'll say well what and I'll say, oh, please, you know, I'll start naming things, and you'll say, no, 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 and then pretty soon we'll both feel really stupid. But I will usually start off with, well, I was in a series 20 years ago. I played Superman's mom, and they'll go, oh, yeah. But a lot of people recognize me from a series I did for Tyler Perry. Meet the Browns, that's what it was called. People recognize me from that, which is surprising to me, because I wore all kinds of wigs, and I played this um, old big star who's in this retirement home, uh, and I'm, I'm, it's kind of like a Norma Desmond type, 
I'm constantly caught in all of my old movies and, you know, doing movie lines. And, oh, my God, I had the most wonderful wardrobe. I had all these clothes from, like, the 40s that they had, you know, that I got to wear. And I had just come into another into another uh, scene for no particular reason, you know, in a ball gown or something. <laughs> it was, so I'm always surprised when people recognize me from that. Uh, I did about 20 episodes of, of that show, so a lot of people recognize me from that. I've not seen that one, but it sounds and, good. I want to check it out. Uh, it, 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 it was, uh, I wasn't, uh, I was on the first couple of seasons and then not on anymore, but I loved the part I had. I got to wear great clothes and be totally outrageous. And I did an episode on there with Rue McClanahan. You should uh, YouTube it or see if you can find that someplace because that was a really good episode. She played my sister. Oh, wow. That would be good. I'm going to check yeah. that one out. Uh, so many parts you've had deal with issues like, uh, you know, gay or lesbian, racism, different things like that. Do you search those parts out or it just happen to come along? Happens, you know. They they got the you know writers are looking for something interesting to write about, looking for conflict, and um, you know. So I've so I've gotten some of those, but you know, when I was on the closer, I mean, so many things that haven't been like that. It's just that some of some really really good ones have been. I'm doing a play right now that's in Los Angeles, so I don't know, you know, how many of your uh, listeners are from Los Angeles. Called yeah. RX, as in prescription. And it's at a small theater called The Lost Studio, and we play until the end of February. Ooh, I wish I lived there. I could check it out. Where do you live? Uh, Southwest Florida. Florida. Well, yeah, that would be quite a trek for you to come here for that. A little bit. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for talking with me today. It was a real honor, and, uh, and uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. Fun to talk about Quantum Leap again. You know, brings a bunch of stuff up to my brain that I'd forgotten about. So this one does it all. I mean, she's an actress. She's an author. She's still working. I just saw her in an episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. She was hilarious. I think that she she's in uh, that new show with Natasha Lyonne. Was she in Poker Face? What did she do in Poker Face? I just watched all of that. She might have been the one that was in the, the old folks' home, if I'm remembering. <laughs> anyway, Poker Face is really good. I recall she in the scene, she's answering the phone and she's like, hello. And then it's Natasha Leone on the other line. She's like, oh, what do you want? And it's like, oh, Shades of Lenore. <laughs> you, you still got it, Kay. <laughs> she knows how to play a very snappy woman. But we know that she also can play someone very gentle because she did it on Lois and Clark for however many seasons. Yeah. <laughs> I want to say I want to go back and watch that, but eh, I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> can you stand the Dean Kane? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, a lot of good Terry Hatcher. Good Terry Hatcher. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So eh, maybe. Maybe I'll fast forward through the Dean Kane stuff. But I, you know what? No, I'm not going to get into this with you guys now but what's the dean stockwell episode he was in one we should watch that for leaps elsewhere all right sounds like a plan i mean i listen <laughs> i love clark more than i love superman like i and i like the character superman but clark is always like my favorite part of the character so yeah. to have dean kane usurp clark kent i don't want to be soured on clark kent I, I will say, as someone who isn't a, a, a fan of dean kane as a person uh, i did enjoy lois and clark 
Some it got kind of bad near the end, but I think like he did a decent job portraying the character. I mean, what didn't get kind of bad near the end when you think about it? <laughs> <laughs> Quantum leap. You get to episodes like Blood Moon, and you're like, it's better Hell than yeah. ever. Don't you mean Blood Moon? <laughs> Blood Moon. You get to episodes like uh, a Leap Across the States or whatever it was called, between. and then you get to bo- <laughs> Between the States, Leap Between the States, that's what it was called. <laughs> and then you get to books like Independence, which, uh, speaking of which, isn't that what's next? <laughs> well, we're, we're not quite there yet. <laughs> I completely skipped over feedback. Well, we forgot I'm sorry. some feedback because, they, yeah, speaking of books, feedback. we can use that as a segue because we did get some good feedback on Odyssey. I wanted to read it. Now, this is once again from our patron, Michael Gleason. Speaking of Patreon news, we have no new patrons. So come on, step up, people. We need some new patrons. Um, anyway, <laughs> our existing patron, Michael Gleason, wrote to us last time when we were talking about Double or Nothing. And I don't usually have the same respondent on like two shows in a row, but he had such great things to say about Odyssey, which was the book that we reviewed in the last episode. I wanted to read it out because I felt like, um, you know, it was just, it was warranted. So from Michael Gleason, he writes, I adored this one. I found the story compelling and well-written, and I found myself legitimately getting emotional at some of the story beats, feeling righteous anger about how Fairgate was cutting the program and angry at Chrissy's mother and that counselor who made her feel like she wasn't allowed to have opinions and thoughts about the divorce. And I felt myself cheering alongside the crowd when they finally won out at the end. I can't recall any other Quantum Leap novel causing that reaction in me, so kudos to Barbara Walton. I didn't see the Tina twist coming at all, despite the fact that they mentioned Chrissy Martinez. It just never clicked for me. I literally gasped at the end when Sam and Al realized that Chrissy was Tina the entire time. I also really liked the stuff with Alan Sean. This might be the first novel where the author struck the perfect balance with the Sam Leap plot and the Al back at the project plot. They were intertwined perfectly. It truly felt like a regular episode of the show. It's a shame that Walton wasn't one of the two for authors, because I would have liked to see her take on the characters again. Isn't that great feedback? I mean, I hope Barbara's listening. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Michael. Thanks. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Barbara. And um, I'm glad that the book really spoke to you. Um, mm. You never know who's going to be affected by what. And yeah. something we talk about is going to be somebody's favorite or least favorite, no matter what it is. Mm. So looks like Odyssey rang Michael's bell. So it's ringing his bell. Um, before we move on. Um, <laughs> Why? <laughs> you want me to keep singing? <laughs> he just you're, wants you're right, to, wanted to sing a song. You would have rather sang Saved by the Bell. Yes. The theme song. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know the theme song to that. So. Oh, uh, Matt does. I know know Matt does. Matt doesn't sing. No, unfortunately for everybody involved, Mm. but one day we'll get you to. We had been going back and forth, Matt and Albie and me, um, regarding Comic-Con because Albie went to Comic-Con and um, he saw a lot of the Quantum Leap stuff there. And at the time, you know, he was ready to go see everybody from the new series, but then the strike happened and Comic-Con basically went without any of the media guests. It was all just comic book guests. So there was still a Quantum Leap experience to be had there and Albie went through it. So we'll be bringing you an episode of the podcast where we discuss that with Albie at some point in the near future. I think you guys are also working on a giant YouTube video on that, right? Well, yeah, Albie's trying to pull a lot together. Um, it seems to be very ambitious, but uh, he's got he's got a bunch of footage and uh, he's got a bunch of people interested in talking about it. So I, I really hope that that comes off. But one way or the other, there'll, there'll be something for sure. 
it was very unfortunate that Albie went with one set of expectations and those were dashed because of what's going on with the strike. But uh, just speaking of expectations, we were tagged in a Twitter thread by Dean Jarris, who is the executive producer of Quantum Leap or the co-executive producer and the showrunner. And um, I guess he wants this information to get out there because people were concerned after what's going on with the strike about the fate of season two. And as we've discussed on the show before, they've already produced a number of episodes. And this is officially from Dean's Twitter account. He says, you will get eight up to a planned mid-season finale. And if we settle the strike in the next couple of months, you will get more without missing a beat. So Dean is confident that we'll have at least the eight to go with. And, um, possibly more. We'll see what happens with the strike, but we just want to say we stand in solidarity with the creatives and with the actors, and we hope that everybody gets what's coming to them and, uh, you know, stay strong. Yeah, yeah. Get that money. Get what you're yeah. worth. And if it only means that we get an eight-episode second season, then so be it. Yeah. And I think, although this is this is information that's out there, the, the question still keeps coming up, so it might be a, a worthwhile point to summarize. Um, the the show technically has a, a thirteen episode renewal for this season, so if they are able to start back up again, that's another five episodes on top of the eight. They were always hoping that that thirteen would get extended out, like much like the first season did. Uh, obviously, with the break in production, maybe that's not possible. Maybe realistically, we should be expecting thirteen maximum. But yeah, Chris, like you say, even eight, that's that's great. Eight new episodes of Quantum Leap to enjoy. And last year, episode nine was, uh, just, just for a comparison, episode nine was being filmed in October. So if they can get filming again by sort of October, November time, actually they'll be back on the same track that they were this time last year. Uh, anything later than that, and they do start running progressively later. So I think there's still a still a good chance there for that, that back five episodes. If even if not more than the 13. That's great. So we'll see what happens. But in any event, we have the eight. So I'm happy about that. And uh, we get to talk about New Quantum Leap. So uh, if you want to talk about the New Quantum Leap or about uh, Odyssey or about the Americanization of Machiko McKenzie, there are many ways that you can do so. You can write us a letter at P.O. Box 542, Bayport, New York, 11705. You can get us on the phone at 707-847-6682. You can email us at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash quantum leap podcast. You can send us an Instagram at quantum leap podcast or a Twitter at quantum leap pod or is it next now? You can send us an X instead of a tweet. No. And po post an X. Po posts. It's not tweeting anymore. It's posting. So it's, you, you can post a message. Well, whatever it is. Don't call it that. Just call it a tweet <laughs> at quantum leap pod. And you can see us on YouTube at youtube.com slash the quantum leap podcast and you can always go that extra mile supporting us on patreon at patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast just remember that we may use your response on an upcoming episode of the quantum leap podcast and now allison this is where we ask matt hey matt speaking of what's coming up next where are we going with the next episode of quantum leap podcast hmm? see how smoothly i did that <laughs> well it, it's it's Great, great grandmama incest. Um, I don't, I don't have the back cover handy of the book, so I'm just going to go with that. Good uh, summary so, of that. So Sam, Sam goes back to earlier 
than Leap Between the States uh, because that that makes it all okay. We, we never be, named the novel uh, yet. <laughs> boffing his oh yeah, it's Independence by John Peel. Uh, <laughs> John. John Peel, who I know as a friend and love uh, his Dalek novels that he's written for for Doctor Who, takes a pass at writing about what it would be like if Sam buffed one of his ancestors. <laughs> there's there's plot around it as well. We'll get to that once I remember what it is. I've not I've not read it since 2016, so all I remember is the boffing. Does anyone have the book in front of them? Because I don't. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I can read it for you. Here's the back cover of truly my favorite Quantum Leap novel. An all-new buff, first time in print. (laughs) A leap for liberty? It's August 1776. The war for independence has begun, pitting neighbor against neighbor. Samuel Beckett must take his stand with one side or the other. But Samuel Beckett, the real Samuel Beckett, is now over 200 years in the future, and his several times great-grandson has taken his place. Is Samuel Beckett a patriot or a Tory? Or, as some suspect, a double agent? Ziggy doesn't know, and Sam's Swiss-cheesed brain can't remember the family history. So Sam is left on his own to discover the dangerous truth. Quantum Leap Independence, an all-new adventure, first time in print. Wow. Sounds awesome. Look, (laughs) Sam wants to get with his great-great-great-great-whatever-grandma. He's going to spend a lot of this book wanting to get with his great-great-great-great-whatever-grandma. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things happening in this book. I've done a video on this book. <laughs> no offense to John Peel, I'm not a fan of this book. <laughs> so it's going to be interesting. <laughs> well, I, for one, cannot wait to reread it. And I cannot wait to reread it thinking of everything that you're going to say about everything I'm rereading it as I reread it. Man. So <laughs> it's going to be amazing. I bet you guys don't like it either. <laughs> I, I have vague, vague memories of it, so it's going to be a trip in any event. Uh, I'm looking forward to it, and until that time, I have been Christopher T. Philippus. I've been Alison Pregler. And I've been Matt Dale. And we will see you with Sam's great-great-great-great-whatever-grandmother. Just keep adding greats on and it's okay. Because it was so great <laughs> boffing her. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast, hosted by Allison, Matt, and Chris with voice talent and contributions from Hayden McQueenie and Zoe Dean. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap podcast is Albert Burge. Christopher DeFilippis and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. Special thanks to our producers, Harold Sullivan, Glenda Palma, Chris, a.k.a. Brackmang, Mike Covert, Jeff Kiska, Craig Riedler, Cosplay Dad, Charles Allen Gossard, and Morgan Felden. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those of the Quantum Leap podcast, its partners, or affiliates. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television, and no copyright infringement is intended. The Quantum Leap Podcast is a Baron Space production. <laughs> I've not seen that since the early 90s. It's like it sticks in your brain, right? Yes, no one ever that's really... the only bit of the film I remember. Yeah, no one ever thinks about how I, I married a ma- an axe murderer, or so I married an axe murderer, or whatever the hell it's called, except <laughs> for that one line. Whoa, man. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa, man. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha!
<laughs> I have never seen that film. I don't even know what you're talking about. You're not missing much. It used to be on Comedy Central all the time. So it was Mike Myers' other film after- uh, Yes, exactly. After Austin Powers. Was it after? I think it was pre-Austin Powers. I don't know. I think it was pre-Wayne's World even. It was around about No, that Wayne's time. World was his first movie. Like, theatrical one, like where he starred in it anyway. Okay. But yeah, it's def- definitely pre-Austin Powers, because I remember it came out, when it came out in the UK, it was all like, yeah, this is the guy from Wayne's World, and that was that was how it was promoted. But I thought it was one of those pre-Wayne's World, but then came out in the UK because suddenly he was a big deal. Ah. That was what I always assumed. But it was, yeah, definitely years before Austin Powers. Yeah. Austin Powers, I think, was 99, and this was mid-90s. Yes. Fucking Austin Powers. So you're saying I'm not up on my Michael Myers lore. <laughs> not this Michael Myers, anyway. It was post-Wayne's World, uh, but Wayne's World was post-Littlest Hobo. We <laughs> 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 were talking about the Run and Stimpy episode, The Littlest Giant. That one I know, but uh, Littlest Hobo, I've never heard of. <laughs> it was a, a wandering dog show from Canada. It was like a, the dog went around the town helping people, and then one episode, Mike Myers was in it when he was very young. Oh, I see. Okay. So it's like Alanis Morissette being on You Can't Do That on Television. Yeah, it's I not get it. Thing. I get it now. Anyway, we got a Hi. podcast to record. <laughs> It'll be, it's all Mike Myers all the time. <laughs> That's right. It's the new Mike Myers podcast. I'm sure we're the first and only. Can I just bitch about Austin Powers for an hour and a half, and then we're good? Get sure. Off my chest. <laughs> we, I, I rewatched those sort of recent-ish. Mm. Um, you know, I loved him as a kid, and like watching it now, it's like, man, Austin Powers is the worst part of Austin Powers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Try living in Britain when that's on. Man, that sucks. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. I was like, oh, look, he's being... Even British people found it funny, and I was like, no, 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 we should be finding this offensive. Don't be stupid. <laughs> All my British friends going around putting on bad British accents going, yeah, baby, yeah. <laughs> That's not how we sound. Why are you doing this? You sound exactly like that, Matt. Yeah, baby. Yeah. That's you. That's what you sound like. <laughs> Do I make you randy, baby? I don't know. I don't know. I've seen them like once. I think that's a line from one of them. It's a catchphrase he says many times. It's so funny when you have a catchphrase. Right. Yeah. Did I do that? Yeah. Stupid. <laughs> I did just watch all of Family Matters anyway. too. So. <laughs> I don't. I don't believe I've ever seen one episode of Family Matters all the way through. I just know that Urkel says, "Did I do that?" You know what? I kind of legit enjoyed it, but it went insane real quick. Once you get to like he's casually time traveling, it's like they've lost the plot completely. <laughs> That's when it got interesting, is what you're telling me. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's why I watched it. I was like, "Get to the time travel already!" And he's on a pirate ship, and I'm like, "Yes." This is what I was watching for. Uh, so we went from Michael Myers to Urkel. Yeah, that's an, an obvious link. I got to get into Machiko mode. I, I rewatched this and then I uh, started reading some of the novel. So I was like, oh man, I went from Machiko to like a, a grandma incest. And I'm, I'm like, <laughs> my mind oh, is that's... all over the place. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we'll get you focused. We'll get you focused because there's a okay. lot to talk about here. <laughs> You just want to stroke it, don't you? 